This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's a whole new area for treating mental health and addiction. We'll look at the latest findings on psychedelic medicine and the power of boredom. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Japan has become the latest country to appoint a minister of loneliness after seeing suicide rates in the country increase for the first time in 11 years, with women suffering more than men. In October, over 2,100 people died from suicide. That's more than all the COVID deaths in Japan in all of 2020. Studies show that loneliness has been linked to a higher risk of health issues like heart disease, dementia, and eating disorders. The UK appointed a Minister of Loneliness in 2018. U.S. life expectancy dropped by a year in the first half of 2020. The Centers for Disease Control says deaths from COVID-19 are the main factor, but a surge in drug overdose deaths is also responsible. Life expectancy was 77.8 years, That's a decline of one year from 78.8 in 2019. The life expectancy for Canada in 2020 was 82.52 years, an increase of 0.18% from 2019. A large UK care home provider is introducing a no-jab, no-job policy for new staff. The company that runs 120 homes across the country is the latest firm to make a COVID-19 vaccine a requirement. A spokesperson says new recruits will be asked at both the application and interview stage whether they've had the shot or would be willing to. The practice is becoming increasingly common across UK's home care sector. She's just been very uh, open about everything in life. And I think that that's really helped her. That's the son of 105-year-old Lucia de Klerk of New Jersey, who has survived pandemics, two world wars, three husbands, and raised three sons. Now she's overcome COVID-19. With a rosary and cross always in her hand, this centenarian celebrated her birthday last month on the same day she was diagnosed with COVID. She was just two when she survived the Spanish flu. When asked the secret to a long life, Lucia says, pray, 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 and don't eat junk food. Oh, and she also eats nine gin-soaked raisins every single morning. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Zoomers remember psychedelic drugs and the backlash against them as part of the counterculture of the 60s. Now they are re-emerging as a promising area of research and treatment for mental illnesses like anxiety, depression, and PTSD. I talked with Dr. Michael Verbora. He's a practitioner of psychedelic-assisted therapy, and he was a presenter at the Psychedelic Summit held at Zoomer Hall. 
So psychedelic medicine is this really, you know, old but new uh, emerging field in uh, Western medicine where we're taking a lot of these um, historical plants or fungi or pharmaceuticals and we're actually not shying away from uh, the side effects of what we call dissociation. And what we're learning is, is that when people really disconnect from their everyday thoughts through these psychedelic therapies, um, they can get immense relief from anxiety or depression that's actually very long-term and prevents a very uh, compelling argument uh, when compared to the traditional options we have today, which is taking a pill every day with only marginal improvements. So we're talking about uh, drugs like psilocybin that we remember from the counterculture of the 60s and, mm-hmm. and of course, the warnings against it. Is it. What about that? The research now shows that drugs like psilocybin have immense uh, antidepressant effects, immense anti-anxiety effects, that when you consume, they're, consume them, they're actually very safe. Um, they don't have nearly the toxicity of a lot of pharmaceutical drugs. Um, and you don't need to take them every single day. You can just have one really meaningful experience in a, in a very controlled setting, usually in a clinic, with um, properly trained psychotherapists. And what we're seeing is, is that you might get six months to a year to maybe even as long as five years in relief of depression and anxiety. You know, these drugs sometimes are regulated by uh, governments and, and others with, uh, you know, certain authorities and powers, um, but the science doesn't necessarily reflect the political um, legislation around it. So I actually find these to be substantially safer than a lot of the traditional options. It's just that stigma that we've created around psychedelic drugs that prevents us from, you know, accurately looking at them. When did uh, the medical world start to rediscover these drugs and look at them differently? Yeah, so there's a lot of research that took place in the, um, you know, 1930s, 40s, and 50s on psychedelics, and we knew that it had the potential benefits to help with um, mental health disorders and addiction disorders. There's a plethora of research that was done actually in in Canada, you know, out west, mostly in uh, Saskatchewan a little bit, and as well as BC. Um, and then that died because of the regulations. They, they started putting these drugs as Schedule One, which makes it, you know, nearly impossible to research um, the proper way. Um, but about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, an organization in the States called MAPS started to, um, you know, collect uh, money, uh, mostly donations and fundraising. And they started to do research with psychedelic drugs. And now you have, you know, major institutions like, you know, NYU, John Hopkins, Imperial College London. These are very, very big academic uh, institutions that are doing immense research. Um, and the results consistently show that it's safe, that it's effective, and that it has profound long-term effects. We're all familiar with the concept of a bad trip. The number one reason why people get these very unpleasant experiences is because they're taking these substances in an uncontrolled setting. They're going into an environment that they don't have control of, such as, you know, a club or, you know, a rave of some sort or a dance scene or in some other recreational setting with a lot of other people there who, you know, um, you know, aren't entering the space with the same amount of energy or intention. So by having specially purposed clinics like Field Trip Health, where we take all that into consideration, we can control the environment so that we can minimize the negative outcomes. You don't use these drugs alone, but you use them in conjunction with talk therapy. The evidence shows that when you take this substance in a certain context with psychotherapists, for example, and you do certain types of therapy programs with the drug, that's where you get the most meaningful outcomes. We know psilocybin. What are some of the other drugs that are in this family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole range of drugs and, and, and a, a ton of plants that we probably haven't even discovered with psychoactive properties like this. Um, but by and large, um, the only legal one today is 
ketamine, which is like a, an old pharmaceutical drug. And uh, we use it in low doses for, you know, its uh, psychoactive effects and it's relatively safe. So we're using that today in the clinic because it's the only legal one. Uh, psilocybin is the main ingredient in magic mushroom. Um, and then you have uh, other drugs like MDMA or some people will uh, remember as ecstasy, for example, which is more of like a club drug. Um, that also is showing immense um, therapeutic effects for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and then the list really goes on to things like LSD and peyote. And so there's a long list and we don't really know uh, how each one is going to pan out in terms of the evidence and for what conditions. Um, but by and large, the similarities are that they're safe and effective. I believe psilocybin was approved for use uh, for terminally ill patients to ease their anxiety in Canada? Yeah, that's that's great. That's very recent. People who are terminally ill are being approved to be able to use psilocybin. And they've actually taken another step, which is allowing the doctors and therapists who are going to be administering the psilocybin to these patients, they're actually permitted to use psilocybin themselves. It's a very unique field where... Um, you know, reading about it and knowing about it and treating patients is one thing, but having your own experience as a practitioner is just as important for a true understanding of, you know, what uh, power these, these um, substances have. Have you taken these drugs? So, yeah, like part of my training um, to be involved with ketamine um, was to actually undergo the use of ketamine myself. So what's the uh, trip like? It's best to kind of look at it from what's happening in your brain. So, you know, Every day, all day, 90% to 95% of the thoughts that we have are exactly the same as the day before. It's really hard to change the way we think because our brains just don't have that beautiful neuroplasticity or ability to change like young children do. But with time, what we see is people get stuck in a rut or they, they get this chronic pattern of thinking, oftentimes very negative and pessimistic. And it, it really weighs on, you know, not just their mind and their body, but their soul and their heart. And, and what happens is when you take these psychedelic drugs, all of those normal patterns of thought you have are completely suspended. So it's, you get this beautiful experience where you're just kind of, you know, re-experiencing everything for the first time. And what it allows you to do is just kind of question a lot of your beliefs. And it makes you ask yourself, you know, is this really true what I think about? Like, and if, and if it is true, like, is that thought really helping me? And it allows you to get like this third person perspective on your life view. It's like stepping out or zooming out on your own worldview and kind of looking at it from a, a more objective perspective and looking at it very differently and thinking, oh, you know what, maybe I don't really need to think so much about this because it's clearly, you know, it could be this, it could be a totally different way of looking at it. And that actually might make me feel lighter and happier. Dr. Michael Verbora, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Michael Verbora. For more, go to psychedelicsummit.live and click on On Demand. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, most of us think boredom is a bad thing. My next guest says we can harness it to find purpose and meaning in our lives. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Most of us think of boredom as something very negative, and it's easier than ever to distract ourselves from it with social media binge-watching, and busy-making activities. But author Mark Hawkins argues we can use boredom to create a life full of purpose and meaning. You describe boredom 
as an emotion, I have to say I've never thought of it that way. It's interesting because I think um, it's like considered a uh, a dispassionate emotion. You know, most bo- or most uh, emotions have a lot of, I guess, intensity to them. It's almost the opposite of that, right? But I still would characterize it as a as a mood or uh, emotion for sure. Because I would have always, well, I experience it as a just a state. Yeah, it's sort of like a, it's a restlessness, right? Um, and that's how it kind of manifests, is that restlessness and then that desire to uh, to do something, right? So, yeah, I mean, it could be considered a state as well. It's a little bit, uh, it's an experience, you know, that is part of, you know, it's part of being alive and it's part of being human. Is part of uh, the avoidance of, of boredom that it makes us feel like we don't have a life? I think that's part of it. Some of my research or my recent um, readings uh, around boredom and meaning is the fact that, you know, I think actually biologically our DNA is meant to be doing things, you know, for survival. And I think our hunter-gatherer, you know, DNA, like it propels us forward for survival, whether that's, you know, hunting or forging or whatever it is. So I think there's something inbuilt in us to to keep doing stuff, right? And so I think that to some degree, uh, we always should be keeping moving and, you know, keeping ourselves busy. However, I think in our society, it's gotten to such a point where it becomes destructive. You know, um, I think uh, I may have said in uh, somewhere in the book that it's it's like we're meant to eat, but we're not meant to eat, you know, 6,000 calories a day. And so the same is true with uh, movement and engagement and speediness is that we're meant to keep moving, but not at the pace that we're doing that today. And so it becomes really uncomfortable for us to not do that. Funny you should mention eating. I have to say one weird thing for me, boredom triggers overeating. Does it trigger other very negative behaviors in other people? Is that usual? I think that is definitely, there's the potential of that. And that is why I think one of the main things that people can get out of uh, the book and doing their own sort of research into boredom is to become aware of how they react to it. Because I think our minds, are, our, our DNA is naturally programmed to find the you know, least path of resistance to satiating pleasure or whatever it is. And I think that's a natural instinct. But I think in our society today, that can be very destructive, right? Because in older times, you know, a long time ago, the environment acted as a natural sort of willpower, Right. But if we're not aware of how we're filling that time today, we run the risk of automatically going to the fridge or automatically, you know, having a drink or whatever it might be. That can certainly potentially become destructive. You were talking earlier about the connection between boredom and purpose and meaning. Mm -hmm. What is Mm -hmm. the connection? You know, we all need a meaning and purpose to our lives. You know, something that we are, that propels us forward, something that uh, is important to us. And so meaning and purpose, I define as finding something worthwhile to do with our time and our lives. And boredom is uh, the opposite of that, in a way. It's not being able to find something worthwhile, either in the moment or actually in our lives. And so it's, it's an opposite. And um, I think that if we give ourselves uh, more time to be bored, then we're more likely to find the things that we are gravitating to and find things that are more meaningful in our lives. You have different types of boredom. There's uh, light boredom and existential boredom. Tell me about the different types. 
you know, we all get bored. Like as soon as, you know, we finish watching a TV show or we watch it too much, we get bored of it and we move on. That is uh, what I uh, call a situational boredom or everyday boredom, you know, something that we all experience because, you know, humans crave novelty and, you know, always needing something new. But then we just move on to the next thing that engages our minds. However, um, there's also existential boredom where, you know, nothing in our life is really important to us anymore and nothing in our life uh, keeps us going, not engaging for us. And, you know, that's a sign that I think we need to begin to re-examine how we've been living our lives. How have you harnessed boredom in your own life? I try as much as I can to do what I call uh, low engagement activities. So it's not necessarily just, you know, sitting and doing absolutely nothing, because that's actually impossible, but trying to either, you know, read or just, you know, kind of, if I have the time in the evening to not turn on the TV or not go onto my phone and just kind of, whatever, look out the window or whatever it is, just not be, try not to be engaged in one of those sort of, uh, like, you know, the typical things we do, TV and phones. And also, I think... I'm still growing in my awareness of boredom and how I react to it. And I'm always sort of examining what thoughts are coming up for me. What actions am I desiring to do to fill up that boredom? So it's, you know, it's a continual, uh, you know, ongoing learning for me as well. Do you think there's a very a special message and meaning for this book now that we're in the midst of the pandemic and a lot of people are stuck at home? Well, for sure. And, you know, like, <laughs> it's just amazing, like, that, but I should say that for the pandemic, some people are actually busier than ever, right? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, um, parents of, of, you know, young children, obviously having their kids at home and, you know, that is, so they might be a lot less bored. Um, but then, of course, for a large part of the population, you know, it has given us an opportunity to experience not having some of those things that we usually fill our time with. And so we've had to find other ways. And I think that it, it has been a good opportunity, although I'm not sure that everybody has uh, taken that. Because I think people were just, uh, I don't know, I think uh, on my social media, I, I saw a lot of you know people baking and doing new activities. And I think that's great that people are doing, they're finding ways to fill the time. But it also would be nice if people took this opportunity to actually, you know, slow down and not automatically fill it up. Anything else you want to leave us with? I would just say that, you know, the, the most important thing in, in dealing with boredom is to be first become aware of how we react to it and just know that it's, it's not something negative and that we can actually, if we really start getting used to it and we learn about it, it can actually, you know, be a very useful and powerful thing in our lives. Mark Hawkins, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Mark Hawkins, author of The Power of Boredom. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.